Not on purpose, though. Um. <clears throat> awesome. Okay, so for um, everyone, let's turn to our cheat notes and begin to kind of look into the um, page five of our um, book two, the Sadhanapada. So we started off last week talking about the Yoga Sutras and how they're timeless principles and relatable in the universe. We discussed how the first book, the Samadhi Pada, was all about kind of like the roadmap to where we're going to Samadhi itself of the eight limb practice, is what we do when we practice yoga, when we create that integration and balance and harmony. And now we're talking about book two, which we read last week, and how to get to that path. Really, what this whole chapter is asking is, how badly do you want it? And here's the three-step path. It's going to give you step-by-step directions for reaching samadhi. So on page five, YS isn't your yoga study group, right? It's Yoga Sutra 2.1. Tapas, Vadyaya, Ishvara, Pranihani, Kriya, Yogaha. Fiery discipline self-study, and devotion to the divine self. These are the actions to be taken to realize the state of yoga. So you all know the mat you practice on is called a tapas mat. That's what they used to be called. And in the Hatha Yoga Pratapika, when we um, uh, read about how to practice yoga and set up your practice space, it was like take dong and some water and rub it in uh, around and you create basically a form of concrete, like a hard surface. There was nothing like this tapas mat, but when we come to America and it's all about um, you know, the land of opportunity and we have to make some good money and consumerize our products, we have a tapas mat that now have different names for different companies that manufacture them. But this mat is your tapas. It's where you come. It's the sacred space where the four corners, where you let the world go, right? And you do what you need to do. And some people get really wigged out if they use other people's mats. Do you have friends like that? Yeah. And some people like don't really care. And some people don't even practice with a mat. But a tapas mat is all about the word tapas. Heat, fire, self-discipline, a burning desire, a burning passion. Fire is a purifying force in this um, philosophy of yoga. So the tapas mat is where you do corpse pose. And all of us remember that the first line of the first sutra is ata, right? And ata is now is the time. We die and now is the time to begin again in this moment to, like uh, Ram Das says, be here now is a big yoga principle, yoga thought, a meditation thought. So a tapas mat shows us, just like our breath, how we inhale and exhale and begin again. So when we step on our mat, we get to burn all of our crap off from the day and begin again. I think that's kind of cool, right? That there is like a, a metaphor to why we use a mat and why we practice. Svadhyaya is self-study, sacred learning. Um, also defined as negative research, but it's a way to be wise. And Kriya Yoga is the yoga of action or purification. And Kriya is something that you do with love. So Kriya, a lot of times you know, like, is an action, and there's seven Kriyas in the yoga philosophy. 
Neti potting is one of them. You'll learn this in one of your um, texts, but kriyas mean action. So this, uh, this kind of point in the book two um, is all about how yoga is the study of who you really are, and it's a self-analysis with the end goal to be free. That's kind of cool, right? You come to the mat, you burn your crap off so that you can reevaluate your experiences and then find moksha, find liberation. <clears throat> Yoga Sutra 2.3, ignorance, egoism, attachment to pleasure, aversion to pain, and fear of death are the five obstacles to attain a state of yoga. So kleshas are defined as obstacles or hindrance to becoming enlightenment. Does anybody ever have a negative thought? Mm -hmm. well, okay, well there's one of them, right? Okay, <laughs> avidya is ignorance, incorrect perception, absence to self-awareness, lack of clarity, stupidity, not seeing things as they are. The opposite of avidya is vidya, you just take the A away. So vidya means piercing clearly. And I like to think about like drishti, because drishti is a way of pure seeing. So when you have a drishti point on your practice mat, it's almost like that little bindu, that little point at the top of the om, where you're transcending all space and time, and you're just having this space of pure seeing, where you're not uh, self-deprecating or being negative, but you're just free, boundless. It's a formless state. Yogis call it, or meditators call it, a blue sky mind. And then we get into uh, the idea of asmita, egoism, what about me? And raga, attachment to pleasure, and dvesha is aversion to pain. Abnivesha is the survival instinct or fear of death, the essence of fear itself. It's what we do in Shavasana. We die today and live every day after with no fear of death. So the process of practicing Shavasana isn't just to integrate your central nervous system and reboot your superhuman machine with prana and kind of let the practice, the movement, have an effect on your neurological pathways. But the idea of Shavasana is this idea of um, abnivesha, to die and live every day with no fear of death. So many people walk around with these fears, but if we realize that if we are in the present moment and we are really self-actualized and everything's integrated, this is the moment, and you have none other. It's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. There's so much subtleties and metaphor and subcontext to like the practice. To me, that is really interesting. It makes like the physicality of it even more purposeful. Instead of like, oh, I want to just really look good in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I wanted to kind of talk about how the um, five kleshas show up in your asana practice. And I know I just defined for all of you what those <laughs> words mean. But let's kind of discuss it. And I wrote it out here. Avidya, age. Someone says, oh, I have scoliosis and twists are a big problem. When I meet new teachers, I point to my back and I say the word scoliosis as if it was my name. Make sense? Or asmita, a mirror. 
When doing hip openers, I can feel everyone staring at me because I've been tight in my hips, and I wonder if that cute boy noticed my shorts. Oh my god, this sucks. <laughs> Ever had that experience? Right? Because that's kind of like your ego, your mirror. And then raga, the desire, the craving. I love doing advanced versions of poses, even when the teachers don't call for it. It feels so good, and I've always been really awesome at it, and sometimes I even add in gymnastic moves to kind of spice it up. And then I say, look at me. I'm in a handstand as I'm in a handstand. Do you have that student in class? It happens. As a teacher, you have to like shut it down and have no judgment. And, but also, at the same time, as a teacher, you can't point that student out to everybody else and say, oh my god, look at how awesome so-and-so is doing, right? Because it's all about not the getting to that point. It's about being present and being with the breath. Dvesha, the idea of cling or aversion. The style of yoga has way too many forward folds. I'm considering trying another style of yoga. And then Abhnivesha, fear. I'll never be able to do a handstand. I saw someone fall out on their hands, and it seems like a really bad idea. I went to a workshop the other day, and a teacher taught it, and I went to the bathroom. That teacher was crazy. <laughs> Has anybody ever walked out of a class when they're doing crow, pretending to have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> it happens. Mm -hmm. Or someone will stop to get a drink of water just at that time when the hard pose is being taught. Mm -hmm. So these things, even though it's coming from an ancient text written over 2,000 years ago, it happens today, right? We just have different words for mm -hmm. it, but it's the same thing. 2.26, clear and distinct, unimpaired, discriminative knowledge is the means of liberation. So that single-pointed focus, that drishti, that deep sense of being right there with nothing else affecting you. Yoga Sutra 2.28, through the practice of the different accessories to yoga, when impurities are destroyed, there arises enlightenment, culminating in discriminative enlightenment. So one thing that I want to remind you is that we're always changing, we're always evolving, and we're always transforming. So this enlightenment that arises is a moment-to-moment -moment experience, right? It's not something that we cling to, because we cling to it, then we're in the kleshas. But it's a moment-to-moment -moment where we just keep on evolving and changing and being present and letting things be instead of being like, oh, I got it. Because if you, oh, I got it, then you're in that awareness not getting it. Does that make sense? Yoga Sutra 2.29, this is a huge one, right? Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharyana, Dharyana. Dairana, Dhyana, Samadhyo, and then I'm not going to pronounce the other thing because I'm not good at this stuff, but the eight limbs of yoga are moral restraints, personal observances, posture, breath control, sensory withdrawal, concentration, meditation, and cognitive absorption. So one thing that I want to talk about before we break all this stuff down is that has anybody ever seen um, like an old-time wooden wheel you know and as spokes of the wheel so instead of think, thinking of this to me like a ladder where you can only attain samadhi at a certain point I want you to think about all of this stuff as if they're cogs of a wheel okay and you can keep rolling if one of the wheels is maybe like a little 
like one of the spokes is a little like bent or not super perfect at that time, it can still roll, right? But if a couple of them aren't working, the wheel doesn't work, right? Make sense? Mm -hmm. I want you to think of it that you can think of your practice or the eight limbs like spokes on a wheel, that it all works and is integrated and works together. It's not just like, oh, first I have to master this, then I have to master this, then I'm going to do this. But it's kind of like it all happens at the same time. It's like if you were in a step program, you're not going to say, oh, because I did the first step, now I'm done with it. It's a lifetime thing. It's something that is continuous. It's something that is part of you. If you're going to practice the golden rules, you're not going to like take one of the golden rules out. You know, you're going to like keep, it's all going to be happening at the same time. So the eight limbs of yoga, let's go through them. Ashto means eight. And Anga means limb. And this is where the name of Ashtanga Yoga came from. Cool? Mm -hmm. Makes sense? So Yama, um, one of the best ways to remember Yama is Yama to your mama. <laughs> it just makes sense. Because what you're going to do for Yama is if, if you're going to treat your mom that way, then you're going to treat everybody that way. If you don't treat that mom that way... It's like, did your um, mothers ever tell you don't ever date anybody who doesn't like their mom? Yeah? Yama to your mama. Yamas are all about self-restraint, control, the do-nots, your interpersonal relationships. And niyama is the fixed observances, rules, precepts, the do's, the interpersonal stuff. I always like to think of the yama and the niyamas as golden rules. It's very similar right, to the idea of the golden rules. The asana that we know of is, sometimes you guys call it posture, right, that's how you define it, or seat, but I want you to think of asana in the sense of when you dive deeper, sitting on the platform of the breath. That it's not just like, oh, it's a posture. If you're not breathing, it's not really yoga, you're stretching. And then pranayama is breath control. So I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into the idea of breath control, even though I know you all take breath ratio techs. When you look at prana, prana, the word itself, can be broken down into pra, which means the smallest atom, and yama, which means mastery, control, or observer, or witness. So that when you look at the idea of prana, which is your vital life force, that subtle energy that flows through your body, and you think about the idea of breath control, pranayama, actually what you're doing is you're at, um, working with the smallest atom of your energy flow, and you're witnessing it, you're observing it. Does that make sense? It becomes almost like a process. Instead of just like, oh, I'm practicing pranayama, right? I'm practicing breath control. It's like I'm witnessing my breath as I practice. <clears throat> so the first four that I stated are the gross. And the second four that we're going to discuss right now are the um, subtle, the internal. And it goes into pratyahara, which is sensory withdrawal, withdrawal or retreat of the senses. 
and dhyana, which is concentration, focusing the mind one thing at a time. And then dhyana, which is meditation. And samadhi, cognitive absorption, perfect meditation, super conscious enlightenment, one with your higher self. So to me, and I wrote this in your cheat notes, cheat, cheat notes um, in a tornado, right? There's always like an eye of the hurricane. There's like a center of it. There's always calm at the center of the storm. To me, this is resiliency practice. Pragmatic resiliency practice is exactly what you're learning. How to not get triggered and flip your lid so that you can stay present and calm in any situation and be able to be proactive versus reactive, mm -hmm. right? So the idea of what we're doing is that these spokes of a wheel, these eight limbs, always have a steady relationship. They're always changing. They're always transforming. And we're surfing the waves of the breath. The challenge is, is that a lot of times we have to let go of our preconditioning because all we have is right here, oneness and goodness. But we weren't always taught that. And that's why the eight limbs start with the golden rules, so that we can recondition. In one thing to talk about is like, when are you in the zone or samadhi? Is samadhi attainable? Because a lot of people, and we talked about this last time we were hanging out, a lot of people think that samadhi in and of itself is like uh, only can happen if someone touches you on the head or kisses your feet or gives you a hug, some famous guru, right? But what if you are running or painting or cooking and you're like totally into it? And you don't even know where you are, but you're just having the best time. Or you're like going, um, you know, like hanging out and playing with children or hanging out with your grandparents or going and working at a nursing home and just like really being present and, and integrated in the process. Is that samadhi? It doesn't have to just be found in meditation or just be found on the mat, but maybe it's something that's who you are. And it happens. And sometimes the experience of being in the zone is a long one. Like, ooh, I ran 15 miles and I didn't even know that that happened, right? Or maybe one day it's like, I can only run a mile and I feel like crap, right? Or it's like, you know, you're always ebbing and flowing because things are always transforming and changing. So I don't want you to think of samadhi as some this perfect meditation or this super conscious enlightenment state you can't get into. It's just not attainable. I want you to think of something that it can be integrated as that cog in the wheel that can keep flowing. The yamas are moral restraints. On 2.30, we're going to move on to the next one where we describe each yama. So have you guys had your yama and niyama workshops yet, your text? Yeah. So now this is where it comes from. This is how we're going to break it down. The yamas or moral restraints are nonviolence, truthfulness, non-stealing, continence, and greedlessness. So when we think about ahimsa, which is truly the main one, 
I want you to think about the concept that really ahimsa, the first precept, the first principle, the first practice of yoga, we never really pass. How many people said a negative thought in their brain today? How many people had like an uncomfortable situation where then it triggered something within them? How many people like just kind of like aren't like so with it today? Right? Ahimsa is all about nonviolence. But we always think about nonviolence to others, but nonviolence and thoughts, words, and action to yourself and to others. And for those of you who've taken like class with me, I always like to end with the thought, uh, word, and action. And that's where the ahimsa concept comes from. That that namaskar hands, as you put them in front of your forehead, it's for a right thought. And your hands in front of your mouth is for right speech. And hand to your heart for right action. Because that is the ahimsa. So that the merits of your practice benefit all beings, including yourself. So sometimes when we are us as yogis, we take the great vows to become one. We never really, truly ever stop practicing ahimsa. <clears throat> Satya is the truthfulness, the honesty, the authenticity. Asteya is non-stealing. And the ideal of ownership is limited. So like if someone's late, that's also um, a form of stealing because you can't take that time back. So think of other things that could be like stealing. It doesn't just have to be like uh, literally stealing. Um, like someone's idea for something? Mm-hmm. Assimilating or appropriating someone's idea. Yeah. Like you don't allow room for someone to have their idea. Mm-hmm. Right? We talked about the other night if someone's crying and then all of a sudden you stop them and hand them a Kleenex, you've actually taken away their experience. Mm-hmm. Right? Instead of just sitting and being empathetic and listening. What There's all kinds of different ways of quote-unquote stealing, but the idea of um, uh, a steya is that the ownership is limited, is the way that the Sanskrit word is translated. Brahmacharya is sexual continence. It used to be like, you know, like people would just not have sex at all, but like we're in America and it's a different uh, era, and the people who went and practiced Brahmacharya usually left their families and went off and hid in the woods and then just became, you know, a scene master, uh, not a scene masters, but they just became these gurus and these wandering sadhus who just didn't have sex. But because of the way that we live and the culture that we live in, we like to define brahmacharya as um, a positive use of your energy. 
So you're using your sense organs in moderation. Obviously, you're not going to go sleep with your um, best friend's husband or your best friend's wife, whichever one you prefer. But, you know, you're just kind of practicing being a good human. Aparigraha is the idea of greedlessness or non-hoarding. And um, there's a great story in the Upanishads about the hands, the brain, and the feet. So I'm just going to kind of bastardize it a little bit. But my hands and my feet have the uncanny ability of grasping onto things. Right? And so does my brain. My brain can grasp onto things really easy. But watch what happens. I can let go. I can let go. This thing messes you up. Right? Mm -hmm. Your brain doesn't like to let go of things. So the idea is, is that the idea of non-hoarding is a parigraha. How can you get those samskaras, those broken records, those ruminating thoughts to stop? And that's what the practice is teaching you. How to let it go or let it be. So that you find a state of being where you acknowledge that that is something that you think about, but it is not you. You are not your thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. It is. Mm -hmm. So these um, five things, these yamas, are called the great vows, the maha. The yamas are intended to govern interpersonal relationships or the way we interact with others. If the goal of yoga is to experience the oneness of being, then the yamas reinforce the goal by minimizing the separation between ourselves and, and others. So one, I always think of um, Bob Marley's song, One Love, kind of like epitomizes what this is talking about. We're all interconnected, one love. And these are the great vows to become one. So if you act in accordance to these timeless principles, then you've already taken the step to become a yogi or as women, were yoginis. That all makes sense? Mm -hmm. Cool. Yoga Sutra 2.32, uh, Saucha, Santosha, Tapa, uh, Svadhyaya, Yishvara, Pranahani, yam, Niyama. And these are the Niyamas, or personal observances. Cleanliness, contentment, fiery discipline, self-study, and the devotion to the divine self. So saucha is all about cleanliness, purity in thoughts, words, and actions. So it's not just like brush your teeth or wash your face or take a shower so you have good personal hygiene and don't spread diseases, right? Maybe someone had a bad case of the crabs and Patanjali's just like, oh, we have to learn how to teach everybody to take a shower so they don't pass it around. Or, um, but it's about purity in thoughts and act, words and actions. Right? So that's that ahimsa again. And then the idea of santosha, contentment. I like to think of contentment also meaning promoting happiness. So santosha, a lot of yoga studios call themselves or, um, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, travel destinations, they call themselves santosha because it's a, a, a state that the yogis want to attain, contentment. How many of you can say, like, I go to bed every night totally content with my life and everything's perfect and I walk around happy? Right? I think if someone was on drugs. But that's the <laughs> ultimate goal is to find Santosha. 
Uh, either that or you want what they had, right? Um, <laughs> tapas is fiery discipline. We talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to dive deep into that. You understand what tapas is, yes? Mm -hmm. Yep. That burning passion. Svadhyaya is self-study. The idea of really like diving deep and always studying. That's why we always say like as yogis, we should have journals, you know, or at least like someone to talk through things with so you can process things. If not, we can't change and evolve, right? Transforming. Uh, and to always have a new book or a new idea that you're working on to keep yourself rejuvenating and replenished. And then Ishvara is that godliness, that divine self. And remember that one of the names of God is your name. Whatever your given name is, you are the divine. And when you find that, that's so flippin' cool. So if you're not a religious person and you're not like, oh, okay, so one of my niyamas is God, then one of your niyamas is to find the divinity in with yourself so that you can be the best person to yourself and others. The idea of self-study and devotion to your divine nature is something called the three-step path to enlightenment. So when you do the tapasvadhyaya and you're doing the uh, tap, uh, and you're doing this devotion, then you've got that three-step path. So the yamas is a great vow to be one, and then you've got the niyamas. It's that three-step path to fast enlightenment. Sounds pretty easy. Take a shower. Think everything's happy, be content, and find divinity. Yoga Sutra 2.33, when disturbed by disturbing thoughts, reflect on the opposite. Um, pratipaksha is the opposite side, and bhav is feeling or understanding or reflection. So one thing, too, is to remember that you're not denying these disturbing thoughts, you're not designing that facet, but you're saying that everything is impermanent, so this too shall pass. And as a teacher, when you're working with individuals, you're creating awareness. You might even be pushing people's buttons just enough to encourage a broader perspective. Um, one thing to think about is that um, this sutra is all about learning how to reframe and rewire your brain to release the samskaras. So then, what do you do to change your mood or change your life? How many of you was it yoga when you stepped on the yoga mat? And that's why you wanted to be a teacher. How many of it was like, I don't know, What's something that you do to change your perspective? Well, if you've been cooped up, get outside. Yeah, right? Like yeah, physical. right, Jill, yeah. Physical stuff, just like mm, taking a break. What do you do when you take a break? Read. Read, dance, sing, smile. Breathe. Breathe. Oh, you said breathe. Yeah, breathing's good too. <laughs> Play music. Play music. Right? Have a little dance party. One thing that I always think is really important is that our culture um, likes to, especially with children, just like give them a little bit of a pill to make things all better. 
And in my perfect world, I don't think there's anything wrong. People need meds, they need meds. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I also think that with challenges like trauma, anxiety, and depression, and a lot of stress and issues that are happening right now in the world, I think that there's great ways to use yoga to change someone's perspective versus saying like, oh, this pill is going to make you feel really good because then you're dependent upon a pill. And I know, like, and there's nothing wrong with, like, a glass of wine or anything like that, but some people use things to an extreme where it's detrimental to them, right? So that's why alternate nostril breathing was created in the first place. Thousands of years ago, alternate nostril breathing was created because every 90 to 120 minutes, we breathe through a different nostril. So if I'm breathing through one nostril, it's making me really logical and analytical, and sometimes that causes OCD if you go too deep, right? Or, like, you know, the, some, you know, ruminating things. Or you're on the other side where it's the kid who's in class and he's daydreaming and looking out and not really paying attention or really creative and maybe goes into their own little world, right? So instead of giving someone a pill, you could do alternate nostril breathing or dolphin breathing for kids. But when you practice alternate nostril breathing or different breathing breath ratio practices, that's a great way to flip perspectives, flip the switch, reboot your superhuman machine. Or breath of fire, which is done in a lot of hot yoga and kundalini yoga practices. You all know breath of fire, right? It's the... I feel like I know it of different names. Yep, Kapalabhati. Yep. yep. Um, but deep breathing, a lot of times, especially when children are having challenges and they get anxious and they can't breathe really well or people are going through um, recovery of different things, the best thing you can do is go running. It teaches you how to breathe. I know it seems really silly, but it does. We're teaching, um, we're working with the Boys and Girls Club for our karma project, and that's a big part of one of what we're teaching them is the, um, the dolphin breathing, alternate nostril breathing. And it's amazing, like, how um, they call them right away. Yep. Right away. Yep. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> Yay. Yay, super stretch. Okay, so then the next thing is, too, I want to say, like, nature, going out in nature, laughing. Laughing practices are huge. You can have the kids to laugh like a hyena, mm -hmm. howl like a wolf, right? There's all kinds of different breathing practices to change your perspectives. One thing that I really like too is tapping. Emotional freedom techniques are really good. Tapping or qigong, they do use a lot of tapping where you just start tapping up here and then here and then here and move through your body, you know? It's really amazing. Mm -hmm the effect that it has on your send lines, on your energy lines. And that's all just different ways to reframe, to practice um, when disturbed by disturbing thoughts reflect on the opposite. Cool. Ahimsa is a really big part of 2.35. This is why we practice non-harming. If you make a practice to never harm others in your thoughts, words, and actions, then your present, in your presence, all conflicts come to an end. Henry James stated once that three things in life are important. The first is to be kind, the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. <laughs> we never pass that first principle, that first precept of yoga, ahimsa. 
Um, this I was the next one, 2.46, uh, Shadira Sukha Asanam was on the summary page of your cheat sheet, one of the most important things that you should really study. What Patanjali has to say about the asana practice, this seat should be steady and joyful. Shtira is steady or grounded or strong, and Sukha is joyful, sweet, and easy. So we're ensuring that each asana is connected. It's a balance of steady, and it's a balance of easy. Last night, I gave an example that I'd like to share with you. You're going to have someone who comes into practice who's going to have so much sweetness, right? They're going to be really loose. And so you could think of that as like a piece of pasta that's overcooked. Blech, right? And then you have someone who's like really stiff, and it's like an uncooked piece of pasta, and they're really strong, but they are inflexible, unbendable. And then you have that in-between point, that al dente piece of pasta, where it's just like, Mwah. you want to eat it. It's like you try to attain that every time you cook pasta, but it usually is on one spectrum or the other. And your ultimate goal with shtira sukha asanam is to have effortless effort, to find that middle ground between sweet and strong. Because you're either one of those, right? And it's the same as ha and ta, sun and moon, sweet and salty, good and bad, positive and negative, male and female. There are always two sides of the spectrum. But as yogis, we try to find that shtira sukha asanam, that middle path, that effortless effort, that really nice, sweet center spot where everything's al dente and it's just like fantastic. How's everybody feeling?